Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. Have we gotten to this point where people wake up every morning looking for something to be offended about? I live in this place called the real world, and I understand what is going to happen. Her story is, I was trying to scare him away. At the same time, she shot him point blank in the face. Okay, that's not exactly a warning shot. The Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give Jeff a call at 855-616-1620. Coming up next, Squirrel. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. This story, based on what we have now, just does not pass the smell test. It is a scary thing that appears that an out-of-control system can really ruin people's lives. Now, this story was broken, not in the local media, but it was broken by NBC News and the Houston Chronicle that have been doing a series on, on child abuse, but from a slightly different perspective. The perspective is a, a system that is geared to assume that parents are, in fact, guilty of abuse. So you bring your kid into an emergency room, um, you explain how the child got injured. Hey, he fell down or whatever. And how you have this system that is, in too many cases, assumes that that's not what really happened, that you as the parent, you are, in fact, the abuser. And there's a, a former emergency room physician at at Children's Hospital, who has been caught up in this. He has gone public with his story. It's getting some attention in local media, but again, it's the subject of huge pieces on NBC and in other newspapers around the country. Here is the deal. Let me kind of go through what we know, and then I want to discuss this with you. Guy's name is John Cox. He is 39 years old. Um, He former emergency room physician at Children's. His wife is a pediatric oncologist at at Children's as well. So here is the deal. Last May, they they adopt a little baby, adopt a baby, and the the mom, the, the doctor, she's on, like, maternity leave. What happens is she's got a conference or something that she wants to go to. They have two other small children. She takes the children goes goes out of town to this conference so she's leaving dr cox at home with the the new with the new baby it's may 8th which happens to be the night of one of the bucks games they were playing so what happens is he apparently has a friend that comes over watches the bucks game with him the 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 baby is there she's in her crib They, they talk about how i mean the the other doctor the other the person who came over to watch the bucks game he's saying oh there there wasn't you know we were watching we were playing with the baby and stuff everything was was fine what happens is according to the doctor's story bucks game ends friend leaves puts the baby in the crib all right Baby sleeps through the night. About 5 o'clock in the morning, the baby wakes up and is crying, as babies do. The doctor gets out of bed, takes the baby from the crib, lays the baby down in bed with him, and happens to drift off to sleep. Now, we, we, we've talked a lot over the years about the, the dangers of co-sleeping and things like that. You know, and we how many different stories have we had where it, it turns out that, you know, somebody has been intoxicated or something and has rolled over and has smothered the baby, and we, we've discussed that. Well, that's that's not what happens here. Apparently, he takes the baby back into his bed, and he falls back asleep. 
And the way they report it on NBC News is that Dr. John Cox knew as soon as he heard the baby's cry that he had hurt his one-month-old adopted daughter. He had accidentally fallen asleep while cuddling the girl in bed early one morning, and he turned on top of her. So he, he had rolled over, and he had fallen asleep. He had rolled over, and he hears the baby, like, utter a little bit of a cry, and he realizes that he's laying on top of the baby. Okay, so this is not a baby suffocation thing or anything like that. Doctor says, hey, he he, he fears that he, he's hurt the baby. He's concerned that he's, you know, smothered her or something. He says he could tell she wasn't in distress, but he could tell from the way she was moving her left arm that he was afraid he had broken her collarbone because he had rolled over on, on top of her. So what he does is he immediately calls his wife, who's also a doctor, who's out of town with their two older children, and apparently they, they do a conference call or they Skype or something like that, and he says, look, I, I'm afraid I've hurt a collarbone. I can't tell for sure, but it's just from the way she's moving it. And they talk back and forth, and they decide, take her into the emergency room. Uh, take her into the emergency room to get her checked out. So he takes her into the emergency room, and and that's what then starts the horror story. He says, okay, th- this is what's happened. And initially, they, they, can't, they can't even determine that it's a collarbone break. But it, it takes them, you know, several hours, or maybe it's the next day after x-rays come back, that there, there's the collarbone that's that. But they start looking at her, and there's a nurse practitioner that comes in and says, this baby has all these bruises. Right? Well, turns out the nurse practitioner is wrong. And in the case of these marks, most of the marks that she identifies, they're not bruises, they're birth marks. So they misdiagnose this. They say, oh, this baby's got all these bruises. Well, the baby doesn't have bruises. The baby has you know, um, birthmarks that they misidentify as being bruises. There are a couple, I think there's a total of three marks on, on the baby, two of which are apparently in the area where when he picked her up, you know, there's just small, small impressions. These aren't like big bruises like when I fell down the stairs on the cruise a while ago. These are like tiny little bruises that go away right away. And there's another little mark that is consistent with where his wedding ring was when he kind of like picked her up to to inspect her. So they, they say, okay, there's all these bruises on the body, and it turns out that, that that's not true. Or at least it appears that that's not true. So they, they look at this. They say, well, apparently have the, they ask him, have, you know, have there ever been any other marks? And he says something like, well, she had a mark on her face a while back because she slept on her pacifier. You know, just kind of like you ever fall asleep on the couch and your hand is up against the cheek. You wake up and you've got a mark on your cheek and then it, it disappears. Okay, so this at this point in time, what they do at Children's is they decide, well, we've got to call in our our quote unquote experts and they bring some of their people at children's who are apparently i don't know assigned specifically to be alerted to issues of of child abuse and so they come in their philosophy is first of all it's kind of a broken windows sort of philosophy um their 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 top child abuse pediatrician and the medical director of the child advocacy team, she says that, okay, well, whenever you see bruises, it might be insignificant, but often it's a signal of something more ominous. 
Um, the, the idea being, you know, if, if you see these little bruises, it might be a precursor to like child abuse and all. And in this case, the doctor saying, hey, I picked up the I picked up the girl, you know, and I, I yes, there's a couple marks from where I picked her up. But I, I rolled over, caused the collarbone injury. There is no history of child abuse with the other children. But next thing you know, the doctors on this child abuse team, they have forwarded this information. A couple days later, the people from the Department of Social Services come over, and next thing you know, they have taken the child. They have taken the child. Then on top of that, what happens is the district attorney's office gets alerted, and uh, just a little while ago, the district attorney's office decides to issue child abuse charges against the doctor, despite the fact that there are lots and lots of medical experts, including doctors at Children's, who are saying, look, this, this, this is not, there's no indication of child abuse here. This is perfectly consistent with what the doctor said happened. And by the way, it could happen to anybody. And the stories in the national media quote at least attribute comments to a lot of the the doctors at children's who are saying you know this is the problem here it's almost and i'm paraphrasing it's almost like this witch hunt where parents are assumed to be guilty um and you bring them in a lot of these doctors are saying you know we we wouldn't even you know bring our kids or recommend other people bring their kids in for these minor type of things because we're concerned that they may be at least in our opinion falsely accused of child abuse our numbers 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. The doctor has subsequently resigned from children, so he's he's out of a job because of this. Children says, well, child abuse is a serious, life-threatening issue, both in Wisconsin and throughout the country. And they talk about how, you know, children are endangered every day and things like that, which doesn't, to me, change the fact that because we have a legitimate concern with child abuse and because obviously we want to get children who are abused out of, you know, abusive situations, it doesn't change the fact that perhaps the pendulum has swung too far and what we are doing is creating a system where children who have normal explainable injuries or in this case an unfortunate situation Guy took the child to bed with him, rolled over on top of her. Okay, we, we talk a lot about the dangers of co-sleeping, but that is not illegal. In this case, it's an injury to the child's collarbone that was very, very difficult to detect. But now the DA's office is charging him. Good luck with convicting him beyond a reasonable doubt based on all the evidences there. The, and, and the kid has been taken from the parent's home. And the guy has essentially been held up as a child abuser, and he resigned from the hospital. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. There's something about this that just does not seem right to me. We discuss in just a minute. And I think, I think it, it sure sounds like this guy is getting railroaded by a, a system which is well-intended. All right, we, we want to prevent child abuse. But the effect is, if this is happening to a doctor, I wonder how many more people are out there 
who are getting into this system where you bring in the kid, the kid's got a bruise on their wrist or whatever, and the automatic assumption appears to be, well, you know, it's the broken window thing. If you got a bruise on a wrist, that's probably an indicator that there might be other stuff going on. All right, 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Like I say, this case is not getting anywhere near as much attention locally as it is nationally. Maybe that's because people don't want to take a shot at children's or the system, or people don't want to feel like they're coming out on the side of child abusers. And I certainly don't want to be that way either. That's not my point. It's just you look at the facts of this case, and red flags have to be going up. All right. If you're on the line, please hold on. We'll discuss this in just a minute. 855-616-1620. This is Jeff Wagner. Back to Take Your Calls. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. We're back. Let's start with Donna in Oconomowoc. Donna, you're first. Good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Donna. Um, this is so unfortunate. A good doctor, which there's a shortage of, which I'm sure he has a wonderful reputation. All these people sticking up for him. I, I was telling your um, um, producer, I'm sorry, this yep. fellow that works with, yes. Um, it, it happened to us sort of like this last year. My daughter had my um, grandson at her house, and he, he was her nephew. And he went airborne on one of these guitars um, that we bought him. And he broke his femur, which is really bad. And at Children's, they kept saying, we're calling social services is bad. And it took hours, but they did not. They talked to my daughter and my son and that, and my daughter is a nurse. And, that. and so, you know, they used their discretion, and it was very bad. He was in a body cast for eight months. You know, it was bad. Right, but, but, but the point is, when you, brought, when you brought the child in, you explained what happened. You felt like you were treated like criminals because the assumption was that this, this couldn't have happened like you said. It had to be an example of, of child abuse, and let's strongly consider getting the police involved. Right, and the sad thing is, is this doctor, like you said, now some people are, are going to be discouraged from taking their children, and these children could honestly die or something in some cases, or, you know, well, I mean, permanent mark. I mean, thank, I mean, I get I, the thing, I mean, if, if you read, and a matter of fact, I just sent out, if you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620, I just sent out a link to the national story about this that has a lot more detail than you get in the local paper, and, and you read this, and, and it's just like this horror story, and I mean, I, you know, that, that you have a, a pediatric nurse who, like, looks at these birthmarks and it misidentifies them as bruises. And so uh, th- th- these are bruises. Well, apparently, no, they're, they're, there's birthmarks. They can't tell the difference about this. Um, but it's this assumption that, gee, that this had to be the case. And the philosophy that if you come in with any bruises at all, that has to be an indicator that there's got to be abuse going on. I, again, th- this this just does not, to me, pass the smell test. Then you've got the DA's office that decides that they're going to provide support for child protective services. And I will tell you, I mean, I've reviewed the criminal complaint that they issued against this doctor. You look at all the other stuff that's out there. There is no way they convict him beyond a reasonable doubt because not only does this case scream reasonable doubt, it it gives at least a very, at least about the stuff that's public gives you a pretty good clearance that not only is this guy, won't they be able to prove he's not guilty, sounds like they might have been railroading an innocent man. Let's talk to Troy in West Bend. Troy, you're on WTMJ. Hey, Jeff, how are you doing? Very well, thank you, sir. Yeah, uh, something similar like this happened to me. We had taken our son into Children's Hospital for symptoms of a hernia, and after we went through the review with the doctor, on our way out of the hospital, we got a call from the sheriff's office saying that they needed to talk to us with child services because the doctor had said that he thought trauma had happened to the area and it wasn't a hernia. Oh. Um, 
Yeah, then we had to take him to state doctors, and they looked at him also. So, I mean, and, and that's what it was. It, it was a hernia. It wasn't any trauma, but the, the, the physician misdiagnosed what had happened to your child? Yep. Wow. Yeah, because then we even got another opinion from a different doctor. He said, no, it is a hernia, and then they operated on the hernia and fixed it. But I had social services come to my work, and, you know, cops come to my work and question me about it while my wife was at the hospital. It was very... Very, just like, well, well, right. All, you, you, you bring your child in. Thanks for coming. That, see, that's, you bring your child in because you're concerned that there's an injury. And next thing you know, you are being treated like a criminal. Um, let's see. Here's a text, Jeff. I've worked directly with the child abuse, with this child abuse as an officer. They are very assertive and quick to judge. I agree. I don't like child abuse at all, but there needs to be some responsibility. The team is unreasonable and quick to judge. Yes, this guy won't get a conviction, but look at all the disruptions this has caused. It is a sad situation. Chris in Milwaukee. Chris, you're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. Hi, uh, my wife and I have lived through a situation just like this. Um, our youngest woke up one morning, and he had what looked like bruises all over his torso and arms, and a day later, they were gone. A few days later, he complained about joint pain in his knees and ankles, and his ankle was all swollen. It was huge. And we thought he had sprained it, so we next day we took him to the hospital, but we were going to, and when he woke up, it was gone. So this was getting kind of weird. You know, these bruises would appear and go away swelling all over, pain in his joints. So we took him into the hospital, and as soon as we got him in there, the doctor took a look at what was going on, and he got right on. He had CPS on speed dial. Right. Okay. So my wife's at the hospital with the son. I'm at home with the other one, and CPS and the police show up. Kind of humiliating to have the policeman going through my entire house. I understand why he had to do it, but, you know, go ahead, take a look. Um, The gal from CPS, I'm going to say this now she was absolutely fantastic she was polite she was courteous she right. was compassionate and we were discussing they looked at the house and they said they didn't see the, the classic signs of child abuse in the house right so they gave us a week to go and find out what was wrong our doctor worked double overtime and found out that he had something called Heinschlag and purpura and this condition causes bursting of blood vessels, and it looks just like bruises. You get the swelling and the joint pain, and it comes and goes. You know, when we got the proof and everything, they came back after the week, and we showed her everything, pictures on the computer, everything. And we were off the hook. But still, the the doctor at the hospital, hey, you know, boom, child abuse. Well, right, and and so, I mean, thanks for calling me. This is is the the scary aspect of this. Now, Now, like I say, I have read the criminal complaint in this case, and it's presented clearly from the prosecution's view, and they're trying to look at this in the light least favorable to the doctor. You read some of these larger stories, and you understand that this is a more complicated situation. But here is the scary thing. There appears to be this presumption that you bring your child in for treatment, and you know, you're know be prepared to answer all sorts of questions. Um, we're going to continue this for one more segment. If you're on the line, please hold on. number of people have stories about how they've gotten involved in similar sort of things and how scary it is. And this is not an endorsement of child abuse. Of course not. We want to crack down on it. But the last thing you want is when, okay, kids get bruises, kids fall down. Last thing you want is you bring your child in, you explain what happened, and you are automatically assumed that you are, in fact, a criminal. All right, we continue the conversation in just a moment. This is Jeff Wagner on WGMJ. 855-616-1620. Eileen in New Berlin. Eileen, thanks for waiting. Good afternoon. 
Hi. Hi. Um, this story makes me livid. Uh, 28 years ago, my daughter was in a daycare center, um, and they knew us very well. Anyway, they noticed some discoloration around her buttocks. Right. So they immediately jumped to the conclusion that she was being sexually abused. And they said that we had to take her to our doctor to have our daughter examined before she could return to the daycare. So I brought her to the uh, doctor, and the doctor said, they're ridiculous. (laughs) There's nothing there at all. And he said that they're just crazy. And I was so angry. So I really, I really sympathize with this guy because I'm sure this is the same situation where they, they just jump to conclusions. Mm-hmm. Well, well, right. That and, and, there's and, abuse. Right. With no history of this at all. And, and you know, the, the ultimate irony, too, Eileen, is that this is Milwaukee County where we have, unfortunately, too many of these co-sleeping deaths where, you know, the, the parents roll over and actually suffocate their child and they don't they never get charged or they rarely get charged. In this case, you've got the doctor. Mm-hmm. The story makes. OK, okay you, 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 the kid is crying. You wake up, you take the kid into bed with you and then you, you fall asleep. It, it's. Again, probably an, an, an lesson as to why you shouldn't do that, but it doesn't make you a child abuser. And interestingly, in this case, even when they brought him in, originally the, the doctor said, I think, I think I broke her collarbone. At least initially, they look at it and they don't think the kid's collarbone is broken. It's not till a day later that they determined it. I mm. mean, you know, it's, it's like awful. the doctor is saying, look, this, this is what I think I did. But it, it's not like you're bringing a kid in that's battered and covered with bruises. And a nurse practitioner mistakes birthmarks for bruises. How can that happen? Right. No, right. Uh, no, th- it, thanks for calling. I mean, it, it's, it, it is. And, and let me. I, again, if you follow me on Twitter, at Jeff Wagner 620 I, I sent a link to the national story that has all these details. But but here are a couple of the money paragraphs that should be scary. And I'm quoting now from the story that was on NBC. Dr. Cox's ordeal has opened a rift at Children's Wisconsin where some treating physicians say they are so alarmed by what's happened to him that they now hesitate to refer injured children for evaluations by child abuse pediatricians, fearing that an abuse specialist might jump to the same wrong conclusion and needlessly report parents to Child Protective Services. A do- I'm quoting now. A dozen members of the hospital's medical staff, a dozen, spoke to a reporter on the condition of anonymity, worried that they would be punished for discussing their concerns publicly. Um, several emergency room doctors described a, quote, out-of-control child abuse team that is too quick to report minor injuries to authorities and that is too closely aligned with state child welfare investigators. Three of the doctors, and again, I'm quoting from the story, recalled being pressured by child abuse pediatricians to alter medical records, removing passages where they had initially reported having little or no concerns about abuse, though there's no evidence that that's happened in Cox's case. Essentially, they've asked a quote, essentially, they've asked us to edit medical records to help the state prosecute parents. One doctor said it's completely inappropriate. Now, listen to this. Five doctors told a reporter 
that they're even afraid to bring their own children to the hospital after accidental injuries, fearing that a misdiagnosis or miscommunication might lead Child Protective Services to break their family apart. Quote, this is a disease in our hospital, end quote, one physician said. The way Dr. Cox's case has been mishandled has opened all of our eyes as to how big a problem this is. So, I mean, you've got doctors in the system, one after another, who are recognizing that, that we've, we've gone through the looking glass on this. And, and nobody, look, if you've got somebody that's abusing kids, you know, there's a special spot and you know where for them. But but it appears that we now have this system where it's innocent until proven guilty, where you have these these quote unquote child abuse pediatricians who look at normal things that happen to kids and then automatically assume it's got to be mom and dad that have done something wrong. Lee in Plymouth. Lee, you're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. Hi. Um, so I have multiple thoughts on this. Uh, one, I this is my real name, and I'm afraid to get my real name because of of the opposite. Um, there's always retaliation in these in these stories. But in my experience, and um, I worked in EMS for 11 years and come from an abusive situation myself, um, including where my child was abused, um, these are not cases that are, are pursued enough in the justice system, at least in, in the state of Wisconsin. And it takes so much to get your child away. Um, I'm on the side of hypervigilance, and I can understand where a team where their only specialty is and training is in child abuse that that's what they see, and they're trying to be hypervigilant to be on on the proactive side of this, this systemic problem in the state. I can't find blame with them. Well, I guess, I, I look, I, I appreciate the whole notion of hypervigilance, but here, here's the problem, Lee. If, if what happens is, if you as a parent have done nothing wrong, your, your child's fallen down on the playground and, you know, broken their wrist or, or whatever, and they've got some bruises, and you become afraid that, you know, if I'm going to bring the kid in, I am now going to have, I'm going to have the doctors that are going to be reporting me, I'm going to have the Child Protective Services, you know, they're threatening to take away the child. The effect of this is going to be that, that people aren't going to take the kids in. I mean, that's, I, I appreciate hypervigilance, um, but... Yeah. I understand what you're saying. It just takes a lot to break a child. Their limbs are, are not as solid as we are. They're more cartilage than they are bone. Yeah. And on the on the playground, there will be witnesses. It, yeah, maybe. I guess don't I look, take away children unnecessarily. Well, it really doesn't happen that often in this state. Well, it, it, what happens, well, thanks to Coley, well, the, in this particular case, uh, apparently that's what you're, you're starting to seeing play out here because you, you've got this system including some of these quote-unquote child abuse pediatricians who are apparently looking for all this stuff, they don't want to consider any other possible other explanations. And again, I, I invite you, I've sent out a link to this article. You, you can look at the way this guy was treated. Maybe this maybe this is an aberration in the treatment, but it sure seems 
like you have this system that is doubled and tripled down. Um, you know, they've come up with this conclusion. They've got this theory that's out there, and the fact that there's all this other these other theories or whatever that don't support it. You sure have a system that appears to be ignoring it. it it's not child abuse, but I was what one of the best movies I've seen in a long time was the movie Richard Jewell, and, and I understand it's not child abuse, but Richard Jewell was the Atlanta security guard who found the, the bomb that, that was at the Olympics that had been planted, and, and he found it, and he tried to get people away. It ended up going off, and a couple people were killed and stuff. He was originally a hero. The FBI has this came out with this model saying, hey, he fits our profile of, you know, a, a person that would plant one of these bombs. So they decided that he was guilty, and they decided to go after him. Now, he wasn't, but they essentially ruined this guy's life. And when they started to get all this information that came in that showed that their profile was, was inaccurate, that, you know, originally it was this guy's a lone bomber. Well, they found out pretty early on that it couldn't have been, he couldn't have been, if he had planted the bomb, he had to have somebody that was working with him because of where a phone call was made or something like that. But the bottom line was they didn't care. They, they ignored all this other evidence that suggested that their theory was, in fact, not correct. And to, to your to your point, Lee, I just go back to the story that I have where you now have a bunch of doctors at Children's who are calling up and, and they're, they're, they're saying, we're scared about this. We have this system that's out of control to the point that, you know, we're not even sure that we'd bring our kids in at this point in time because, you know, we're afraid that, you know, we would suddenly become accused of child abusers. And, and that's not the system that you want where immediately you walk in, you say, hey, my, my kid you know, was running in the house and he, he fell down and he cut himself or whatever. Th- those are ordinary things. And, and I look, I understand that there's child abuse and I understand we want to crack down on it, but you, you have to have a happy medium. I'm going to be, fought, this, this case, like I say, it's now gotten all this natural national attention. The district attorney's office has decided, you know, they're, they're going ahead with charges. Good luck trying to get a conviction on this. But I mean, if... If a third of what these doctors are saying at the hospital are true, I think this hospital and the system needs to take a really hard look at what is going on. Let me tell you a quick story. It has nothing to do with child abuse, and it has a happy ending, but it's kind of related. A couple of weeks ago, I'm upstairs. It's a Sunday night. I am upstairs. I hear, my wife is in the basement organizing stuff. She's always doing things. I hear this loud crash coming from the basement. So I, I get up, I'm upstairs, I, I go to the door the, the, and holler down and said, Hunter, are you okay? And she says, uh, I, I, she's talking on the phone with somebody. So I go down the stairs, there's blood all over the basement floor. And I go, what the, you know what has happened here? She's still talking. Well, what had happened is she was moving a bunch of, of plates, glass plates, moving them from a table over to these shelves we have. And instead of doing three at a time, she decides to take 12 of these glass plates and she trips over this rolled up carpet that was in the middle of the basement floor because her brother-in-law had left it there. So, I mean, it's this, it's this one thing after another. Okay, why were you taking 12 plates? Why are you trying to step over the thing? But she falls, trips over this thing, goes down, drops the plates. The plates shatter. That's why her glass all over. And she lands. You know, she puts out her hands to break the fall. And a piece of glass cuts her left hand, I believe. And it's bleeding like, and so there, there, you know, she's trying to clean up the glass and stop this. And there's blood all over the floor. It looks like a horror movie. And I'm going, sweetheart, first of all, she's continuing to talk to her friend Colleen. I said, 
get off the phone, you know, go upstairs, like clean this up. Let's decide if we got to go to the emergency room or do we have to call 911 or will the bleeding stop? It ended up doing that. I'm downstairs cleaning up the blood. I'm cleaning up all the glass. But I'm thinking, you know, if if, if we call 911 and the police show up, there's blood all over. I'm, I, I, I'm going to be a suspect in spousal abuse because it's going to look like I came at her with a knife and she put up her hands and they're never going to believe this whole other story. And it's like, <sighs> next time, sweetheart, First of all, let's get rid of the carpet that our brother-in-law left in the middle of the floor. And secondly, let's let's take maybe three plates at a time instead of a dozen. But I, I was just now th- that's kind of a funny story with a happy ending because, um, you know, all's well that ends well. But it, it is you understand what stuff looks like. And in this particular case, you know, this doctor now, you know, he's resigned from children's. I, if you read the stories about this, it just doesn't seem like doesn't seem like justice is being done. Now, maybe all sorts of other facts will come out, and he did really shake the child, and he did cause the collarbone to break, but I have serious reservations. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Boy, we're being swamped with texts. Jeff, my daughter was born with blue spot birthmarks. Thankfully, our doctor noticed it. We had to carry a certified letter explaining that these were birthmarks. We were questioned in daycare. When we took her into the ER, we were questioned. If it weren't for the letter and follow-up with our doctor, I could not have imagined, you know, what would have happened um, to us. Uh, let's see. Jeff, my granddaughter has a birthmark that looks exactly like a bruise on her right shoulder. It's something to do with being part Spanish. I forget what they call it, but I'm waiting for somebody to say something about that. Jeff, another text. There's a medical name for the spots that appear as a bruise. Also, nurses aren't trained to recognize the difference. I'm a pediatric nurse. The people are overreacting to a situation where innocent people are basically ruined for life. Um, I actually, I, four of my children had this particular condition. I, again, and I, you, you look at this and, and look, may, maybe, maybe the reporters, maybe the 15 physicians who have analyzed this case and said there's not abuse, maybe we're all being guppied on, on this, but it, it sure, doesn't seem like that and this notion that gee if a kid presents with a bruise or two bruises that's an indicator that there's something more going on and it's a predictor that there's going to be abuse in the future maybe it's just that you know we we don't grow up in bubbles and kids fall down and they bump into things and you know they they have minor bumps and bruises all the time and it's not a result of mom or dad or older brothers or older sisters or neighbors or grandparents that that are beating them and again i i appreciate you want to be hyper vigilant i i get it but at the same time we do not want to start a witch hunt where for normal childhood things or explainable stuff 
we're automatically going to assume that the parents are unfit. And if the article I'm citing is is true, and, and if you now have a rift at Children's Wisconsin, where you have a number of physicians who are so alarmed about what's going on that they say they are hesitant to refer their patients or even bring their kids in for treatment because they're afraid the same thing could happen to them. That tells you you got a system that is badly, badly, badly out of whack. This is Jeff Wagner. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back. The Sheboygan Police Department finds itself embroiled in controversy. Why? Because they have a logo that they have used since the 1960s. If you want to see the logo, and you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620. I've got a link to the story that appears about this in the Sheboygan Press. But the, the logo, which appears as a patch that is on the uniforms of the Sheboygan uh, County Sheriff's Department. Um, that it also the logo also appears on Sheriff's Department squad cars, so it, it's it's on there. The logo that they have is what is described as a chief's head image. It is an image of I, I, again. Presumably a Native American chief, you know, with the full headdress. That That is the logo that the county sheriff's department has. It's on the squad cars. It's um, part of the patch that they have on their uniform. It's been there since the early 1960s. Now, how did this particular patch come to, to be? Well, okay, Sheboygan is a Native American name originally. Apparently it comes from... Um, comes from the Chippewa language, and it was first assigned to the Sheboygan River, which runs through Sheboygan County. And subsequently, after the Sheboygan River, you had Sheboygan County, and you had the city of Sheboygan. So it's a Native American name. Back in the 1960s, they had a a contest, and apparently they, they invited people to submit different logos for the community and for the sheriff's department, etc. And so the, the logo that ended up winning um, was this, this logo, which, again, it's the chief's head image. It's been on the squad cars forever. It's been as part of the patch forever. And in, in case people were wondering, uh, I'm just right now I'm looking at it's not uncommon for police departments across the country to have patches that that have something to do with the area where they're from. I'm looking at the New York Police Department patch in Philadelphia and, uh, let's see, uh, District of Columbia and Seattle and Chicago, and, and they have these patches, and they all have something that relates in some way or ties in in some way to the community. So this is not an uncommon thing. But it is the chief's head image. So the story in the Sheboygan Press headline, some say Wisconsin schools shouldn't use Native American mascots. Why does the Sheboygan County Sheriff have a chief's head logo? All right. So the, the Sheboygan County Sheriff, he, he's not 
backing down. He says, look, here, here's the, here's the deal. There's nothing negative about this at all. This isn't a derogatory image in any way, shape, or form. He says, you know, nobody, nobody that's communicated to me portrays this and believes it's negative. He said, we're not using this in a negative fashion. We're not using it in a derogatory fashion. But our, our community, it is called Sheboygan. It has a Native American name. This patch simply reflects that heritage. And of course, the journal, uh, the Sheboygan Press goes out and they, you know, they find some of the usual suspects who make these arguments who say, look, the problem with this whole thing is that, you know, we, we find this to be offensive. Um, the fact that it sort of trivializes and makes, um, our, makes Native Americans have them viewed in a stereotypical sort of way. The sheriff says, look, I'm not backing down on this. That this isn't. Now I'm paraphrasing. This isn't the Redskins. This isn't a sports team. You know, we're we're a public agency. This has been our patch. This has been our logo for fifty or sixty years. There's nothing about this logo which reasonable people should be offended by, and I have no desire and intent to change it. All right, eight five five six one six one six twenty. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now I understand. The, the argument, and I understand why people, even reasonable people, could be offended over things like redskins, you know, the, those sort of terms. I understand why people might be appalled this Sunday at the Super Bowl where you have the Kansas City Chiefs and you're going to have people in the stands that are doing like the Tomahawk Chop or the Atlanta Braves. In this particular case, this is just a logo, and the logo is in recognition of of, again, Sheboygan County, which is, again, a, a Chippewa word. All right, should the department should the department change this? Is this insensitive, or is this political correctness run amok? 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And I have to tell you, for the life of me, for the life of me, it, it seems like this is one of these manufactured controversies. I can't really believe that there's anybody in Sheboygan County who sees the Sheboygan County Sheriff's Department, the squad car go by, it says Sheboygan County Sheriff's on the side, and it's got the, again, the Indian Chief logo on it. I can't believe that any reasonable person would think that that is intended in a disparaging way towards Native Americans. But maybe I'm wrong. All right, 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, is this just politically correct? Is it political correctness? Or up in Sheboygan, is the sheriff and others completely tone deaf and not recognizing how offensive this is? We discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. This is Jeff Wagner. Back for more, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Katie in Burlington. Hi, Katie. Hi there. How are you? I am well, thank you. Okay, should Sheboygan change? Should people be offended by this logo that they have on the Sheriff's Department cars? No, it shouldn't be changed. And what I don't understand is it seems the ultimate offense. If you meet a Native American and you say... I, I respect you, but I'm offended by any representation of you, any or anything that, that denotes your history or your heritage or your contribution to this state. That offends me. 
Yeah. I mean, that makes no sense to me. That is part of our state's history. Well, and it seems to me that the names and the references to the the power and the strength of an Indian chief, the, the names, their contribution to this state should be honored. It should be recognized. Because what are you trying to do? Are you trying to whitewash the history by by eliminating any possible reference to their culture or their heritage right and see and that's what yeah that's what this that's what this patch it seems to me up in sheboygan does now it it doesn't have it's not like they're they're calling themselves the sheboygan indians or anything it is designed as a recognition of the 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 indian the native american heritage of sheboygan and that's the way that they are representing someone who in a contest put it on that in the first place, because they realized the history of Sheboygan. Right. I mean, that that's why they put it there in the first place. They didn't put it there to be a, some kind of mascot for the police department. Right. If people would just use their brains, it, it just blows my mind, because it really seems it's almost come full circle, where they're the ones who are really offending the culture by wanting to not right. recognize it. Well, and again, th- thanks for calling. I mean, a- again, it's, it's you know, we, we assume that, for example, Native Americans are monolithic and, and everybody feels the same way. And, and that's not true because if you go back and even on the issue of redskins, which I concede is a different issue than the, um, you know, the Menominee Falls Indians or or the Cleveland Indians or the Atlanta Braves, e- even with the, those logos, you ask people about the Redskins, you ask Native Americans about the Redskins, and, and what you find is a, a large number of Native Americans don't have any problem with that name Redskins. Well, th- this isn't even that. This is, this logo, this patch is designed as a representation, uh, again, of the Native American origin and heritage of the community. It's not a caricature. It's not like the the Cleveland Indians Willy Wampum thing. I mean, it's it's on. It's not designed to make fun at, at all. It's on the sides of the squad cars, and I, I think again, it's it's a te- tribute and a testament. And I think you can do these things with respect. Now, again, if we were talking about some silly type of cartoon drawing, you'd wonder why that would be on the side of squad cars to begin with. But that's not what this is. And if you want to see a picture of it again, you follow me on Twitter at Jeff Wagner six twenty. Um, it's it's there. At, at what point in time do we? I mean, how far do we carry this? I, I mean, if if we're talking about cultural appropriation or whatever, do we have we reached a point where we have to change all the names? I mean, what what about? I mean, you think about all the names that trace back to you know the Wisconsin's you know vibrant Native American heritage. Do do we have to change the name Sheboygan? Can we no longer refer to Sheboygan because uh, will that be cultural appropriation of of a Chippewa name? What about you know McGuanago, which again has a has as a specific meaning. Can, can we no longer have Native American names on towns and cities because people are going to be offended by this? I just, I, when I saw this story, I have to admit, I was just kind of scratching my head because this is the latest example. I mean, it, it starts with the pro sports teams and it, it's now carries over to the high school teams where you have the politically correct and the perpetually offended who are looking to change things. And now it's, okay, let's let's try to figure out a way to eliminate 
any Native American imagery, no matter how benign, let's get rid of it because I, I guess we, we can't have this out there because somebody somewhere somehow might be offended. And at least thus far, the, the sheriff has resisted any he said look we, we haven't had any issues with this it's not like we have all these people demanding that this be changed now now that you know there's the story out there you know who knows my guess is this is now going to kind of go viral and he's going to find himself under all sorts of heat for this but at least right now he says look we haven't had any problems with this for 60 plus years nobody's been complaining about this people understand the spirit of it and at least temporarily he has no intention of changing how refreshing this is jeff wagner you're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Bob and Sheboygan text. Sheboygan South High School's mascot used to be the Redmen. Uh, they changed it to the Red Wings back in the 1990s. Surprised the sheriff's Indian logo didn't come up then. Didn't bother me then, doesn't bother me now, it's okay with me. Well, now that this story is going public, unfortunately, my guess is, wanted or not, the Sheboygan County Sheriff's Department is going to get all sorts of all sorts of attention. Oh, I can't believe that they're being disparaging towards the Native American culture when actually the opposite is true. Hey, heart disease is the leading cause of death in the United States, and chances are you or someone you know may be affected by it. Please, please, please join Gene Miller for our latest WTMJ Cares initiative. Help us raise funds for a local chapter of the American Heart Association leading up to National Red National Wear Red Day, which is Friday, February 7th. That is a week from Friday. You can go to WTMJ.com for more details. WTMJ Cares is powered by Watry Industries and Premier Aluminum. Very cool. All right, some breaking news on the, I guess, on, on the labor front. Pfizer Forum downtown has been involved in ongoing negotiations with the people that work at Pfizer Forum and it, it's there's been a, a a little bit of a contentious debate about you know what they have to ratify a contract what how much are you going to pay the people that work there and i they've announced today that they've reached a contract agreement it has to be um ratified by the union but area employees people who work at the Pfizer Forum uh, the agreement is a minimum $15 an hour minimum wage. So that's going to be the minimum. People who are working there now who make 15 bucks an hour, they, under the terms of the contract, are going to get a boost. They're going to get an $1.50 raise, so they're going to go up to $16.50, um, but the minimum wage is going to be $15. And uh, the the Bucks are, are touting this as an example, how like labor and management can come together and work out these arrangements. And, you know, I, I, I tell you, given the fact that this is a quasi-public-private, but essentially private organization, operation, I, I, I think it's great. You know, to me... This demonstrates part of the reality that's out there. And I have a number of friends who are business people. And what they will tell you is that that the whole idea of of minimum wage, it it doesn't need to be something that's driven by the government. I mean, whatever the minimum wage is, people I know that, for example, own a series of fast food restaurants, they'll tell you they can't get people to work for minimum wage. You know, they start people at $12 or $13 an hour, and then they have to quickly bump them because you can't find people that to work for that wage that you want to have working for you, or you can't have people that are going to come back the second or the third day. So it's kind of a marketplace thing. Now, I I think it's great 
I have nothing against people, you know, making money. And if the owners of the Bucks, who are um, very, very wealthy individuals, and the NBA generates a lot of revenue, um, if, if they want to make sure that the workers at Fiserv are paid at least fifteen dollars an hour, I, I think that that's great. And if the workers at Fiserv, if they're happy with making at least fifteen dollars an hour, I think that that's you know great great as well. And this is a good story. It's a positive story. It's a situation where you have labor and ownership coming together and agreeing on a deal and moving forward. Apparently, there will be joy and happiness. And that's that's absolutely tremendous. To me, what's interesting is that they were able to do this without government involvement. The Bucks obviously recognizing that in order to get the quality of people they need or they want to work at Fiserv, they have to pay at least $15 an hour. And, I, you know, that's to the benefit. It's a testament to the different employees that work there. I am glad to see that this deal was done. Interestingly, though, it got done without government having to get involved. This was the private sector recognizing, or at least the quasi-private sector, recognizing this is how much money we feel like we should pay our employees, and this is how much money we need to pay our employees to get good employees. And it was the employees saying, okay, this is what our price is. Don't need government involved. This is, again, in this case, it's Fiserv Forum and the owners, and it's the employees. They reach an agreement. Glad to see everybody's making the money, and glad to see it's not necessarily having to be done by a government one-size-fits-all mandatory increase to $15 an hour. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. So, very glad to have you with us. The Bull is a daily golf course. It, there's, let me back up. There, there's, if, you're, if you are a golfer, there's a number of different opportunities that you have to play golf. First of all, there are the private clubs. The clubs that you have to be a member of. You have to pay, sometimes you have to pay an initiation fee. You always have to pay like an annual fee. And those fees give you access to the clubs. Sometimes there are clubs that are are private, but they are also open to the general public. So they have members, but at the same time, people can come in, you can make a reservation, you can pay a daily fee, and you can play the, the course. Then there are the golf courses that, that don't have members, just they're private golf courses, but they're open to the public for play. There's no membership, etc. And then there's the public golf courses that, that are around, that are run by the different counties or the communities or, or whatever. So there, there's all those different choices that are there. For years and years and years, golf courses, there was a booming business in building golf courses, try saying that three times quickly, all across the country. More and more people started playing golf. More and more people were excited about golf. The people that were playing golf in general had disposable income. And so you had all these developers that came in and they built these golf courses, including a number of high-end golf courses. And here in Wisconsin, we have a number of very, very high-end golf courses throughout the area. And I don't want to list them all because... I would, you know, I, I, I'd, I'd forget a couple, and then people would say, "Why well, didn't you mention this course?" But of course, you know, up in, up in the Sheboygan area, you've got, you know, the the Kohler Golf Courses, Whistling Straits, where they're going to have the Ryder Cup this year. That's a golf course that the public can play. But in order to play it, gosh, I don't know what the downstroke is. It's probably, 
to play during the summer and you know again not early bird or after twilight or something it's probably around 250 bucks to, to play which is a lot of money to play a round of golf uh but but again it's it's a course that you you experience um there's a lot of other courses that are like that throughout the area lots and lots of money to play one of the courses Matter of fact, in that area is called the Bull. It's been around for, I don't know, 15 years, maybe a little bit more. It is the only Jack Nicholas signature golf course in Wisconsin, and it's in Sheboygan Falls. I played it once. It's a very, very good, challenging course. It's a beautiful layout. Um, I'm just, I'm looking at, at their website. If you wanted, if you wanted to play it, and I think I'm looking at the rates from last year, um, the spring, you play May to June, normal rate, $85 for a round. During the, the summer, June 5th to September 30th, they charge 150 bucks a, a round. And then I, there's probably cart fees on top of that. Not sure, but you, you get the idea. It's $150 to, to play golf. Now, again, if you play really early or if you play late, you can perhaps get discounts. But all in, all done, you, know, you want to go, you want to tee off at 10 o'clock in the morning, it's $150 per golfer. Now, I bring this up because the, the bull is on the verge of going under. Apparently what happened last week is they had a, they had, actually this was just two days ago, as a matter of fact, um, they had a, they were scheduled to have a public auction for, for the Bull Golf Course. That was canceled about 20 minutes before it was supposed to start as the, the um, attorney for the course's creditor decided that this was going to go into Chapter 7 bankruptcy. In Chapter 7 bankruptcy, a debtor places their property and debts in the hands of the bankruptcy court, and then the bankruptcy trustee may try to sell the property to repay the creditor. Um, but, but the bottom line is, okay, it's not making enough money to pay its bills. Story in the Journal Sentinel talks about how uh, the bull defaulted on a $4.2 million loan owed to Wisconsin Bank and Trust, according to court documents. This course was the best new daily fee course in America in 2005 by Golf Week, and it's been listed um, as, as one of America's best courses that you can play every year since then. By you can play, it means that you, you don't have to be a member to play there. You can just show up, you got your credit card, you put it down, and, and you can play. But obviously, what's going on is there's not enough people that, that are playing it anymore. And that's true all across the country. And, and what you're finding is that you've got, you know, you've got some courses that are out there that charge 550 bucks to play golf there. 550 bucks. The bull charges, you know, $150. Municipal courses, you can play 18 holes on a Sunday morning, you know, at a, at a county golf course. I play on Sundays at Hawthorne Hills, which is an Ozaki County course. Been playing there since the early 80s. I, I think it's like 45 bucks with a cart, I think is what it is. Maybe, you know, I, I could be off a dollar or two one way or the other. But, you know, some people pay 150 or more to play golf. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Golf is going through a series of problems. First of all, it is not attracting young people, just like riding Harley-Davidson motorcycles and reading newspapers. Younger people are not gravitating towards golf 
as much as other generations did. A lot of people are saying, okay, golf, that's that's what my parents do. That's what my grandparents do. Don't want to do that. Secondly, the experience of playing golf takes a ton of time. I mean, that's it, it's not like, hey, you just kind of roll out and you throw a ball back and forth. I mean, if you're going to play like 18 holes on a Saturday, you're committing to a four- or five-hour experience. And a lot of people, particularly younger people who are raising families or whatever, you know, don't don't have that time. You're running around. You're taking your kids to soccer or to Little League or to whatever. You don't have the time to commit that to that. And so as a result, what you're seeing is a lot of golf courses all across the country, they're closing because they don't have enough business and they can't charge the rates that they need to charge to get people to come. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right. Are these golf courses, have they done this to themselves by charging excess, I don't want to say excessive, it's, it's whatever you want to pay, but I mean by charging 100 150 200 $250 or up, are they so limiting the market that there's just not enough demand? And are we going to see a lot of golf courses close as a result of everything going on in the industry. So golfers of Wisconsin, I'm one of you, and I know there's a lot of you out there. All right, are, are the prices getting crazy? Are there too many golf opportunities that are there? And are we going to see a huge shakeout in the industry? Is what is happening to the bull, is that just the start of what we're going to see happen all over the state when it comes to golf? 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And, and my answer is, yeah, I, I think I think this is the ghost of Christmas future. I think we, we have too many golf courses. I think many of them are too expensive. You've got too much um, opportunity, too much product, chasing too few customers. And, and I think... I think it's going to be a tough time for the industry um, for the foreseeable future. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, don't get me wrong. There's always going to be people who want to play golf. I mean, I'm not giving up the golf game. I'm looking forward to having an opportunity to play more. But big picture, I'm not enough to sustain these golf courses. And I will tell you, um, I I got to tell you, I enjoy oftentimes a, a golf course I can play for $40. I enjoy it just as much as a golf course that they expect me to pay $200 for. 855-616-1620. Gru is lining up the calls. If you're on the line, please hold on. We discuss in just a moment. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 855-616-1620. Let's start with Chad in Franksville. Hi, Chad. Hey, good afternoon, Jeff. Just a real quick comment for you. You know, as a lifelong golfer, which I think you are too. I am. Anytime, anytime a golf course closes, it's it's sad. You hate to see that happen. But moreover, Wisconsin is is really behind an eight the eight ball when it comes to our season, as you know. Right. Especially look at look at last summer, how miserable that was. Didn't have much of a spring, and it kind of went right into winter. So other other courses around the country, you can golf eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, and here we're 
six, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Like like I say, last spring, I, I belonged to a club, and I mean, they were they were down. Like I think they were. I saw the numbers, hundreds and hundreds of rounds last year, simply because, to your point, the spring it was so awful that you know you you couldn't get people out, and um, you know, for some people, there, there's some older people who don't like to walk. I happen to like to walk, but there's some people who don't, and they need carts. And sometimes, if the course is soaking wet, you can't get the carts out, so people don't play. Yeah, I mean. Especially private golf course operators, they're they're under the gun because they're weather dependent and there's so much competition that's out there. Still, let me ask you this, Chad. I mean, what? How much money would you feel comfortable paying for a round of golf? I, you know what? I, I'm kind of a cheapskate when it comes to that, Jeff. I always look for deals on on yeah. golf now or what have you. I think at an, uh, an average municipal course, my opinion. That thirty to forty dollars yeah. is is very fair. Once you get into like the uh, the morning stars or the bogs, yeah. It, yeah if you're if you're close to a hundred, that that's fair because you're getting what you pay for. Right. Now, like whistle, you commented on whistling earlier. I've been yeah. fortunate enough to play it twice, not on my dime, but <laughs> yeah. well, me too. <laughs> I, I played it better. twice, not on my dime either time. I yeah, <laughs> that's the best. That's the best golf right there. Yeah. No, it, but anyways, I think that I think that fifty dollar average is is fair by me. Yeah, no, and I and I I agree. And there's there's a lot. We're kind of spoiled here in southeastern Wisconsin because there are so many good golf courses that are around. You know, interestingly, you made the point about the weather. Uh, this is not a, a uniquely southeastern Wisconsin phenomena. I just uh, let's see. Uh, I have, there's a text, Jeff. I have friends in Myrtle Beach, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. That's that's like a golf haven for people who aren't familiar with this. I mean, Myrtle Beach is one of the places that if you got eight people and you want to go play golf, you can go to Myrtle Beach and then you, you play 36 holes of golf a day for three or four days. There's all these different golf courses that are, are out there. Anyhow, I have friends in Myrtle Beach. They tell me there are courses um, closing right and left for the exact reasons that you stated, which is fewer and fewer people going and the cost factors and all of that. I mean, this is... This is an issue, and, and I think, again, another person was making the text saying, Jeff, golf courses in the 2020s are going to be like bowling alleys were before. You know, you used to have these extensive golf leagues and stuff. I, I think it's going to be a challenge moving forward. Um, and, again, especially – look, I think the private clubs are going to be okay because they offer a different experience, and they appeal to a, a different sort of clientele. Um, and then, of course, I think that the public – and the lower-cost private tracks, I think they're going to be okay because there's always going to be people that want to play golf. But these these higher-end courses, or particularly the mid-higher-end courses, I mean, like Whistling Straits, all right, that's going to be an experience, and maybe you get people from all over the world coming in because they see, hey, I want to play the same course where the Ryder Cup's being played. But the the daily courses where they're charging 150 bucks or whatever, that I, I just don't know how they're going to make a go of it moving forward um let's talk to bill in hartford bill you're on wtmj good afternoon hi jeff i think this is just one of the reasons like uh, you guys have mentioned some great points but this is just one of the reasons why i think some of these courses are closing as well it's a little known fact that county golf courses like the ones in ozaki and washington and right. ozaki uh they don't pay property taxes right and that's a huge bill for a private uh, golf course to absorb right. because of all the length. I mean, you could imagine, I know the tax bill is enormous for some of these places. So right away, starting from the beginning of the year, they're under a rock. And, you know, another thing with county golf courses is they don't really care. I mean, they want to make money, but if they break even, they're okay with that, you know, as long as it's not an expenditure. Right. And, uh, and it's pretty hard when, when a private 
I can't think of another business where a private company is is in direct complication, you know, in direct uh, competitive with 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 the government. And I just think that's just another factor. But you guys have also brought up other good ones. No, no, you're well, you're you're exactly right. I mean, it is a, you know, and we talked about that with uh, the the golf course in, in Waukesha, Wanaki, who. Uh, you know they're they're, they're going to keep it open for one more year, and they're going to try to see what can happen. You know, but it, it's public golf course hemorrhaging money, but yet you have a lot of you know the taxpayers who are, are very very they're invested, they they love it, they want to try to keep it open. But to your point, you know, it is hemorrhaging money. So the question becomes, how much taxpayer dollars can you put in to supporting a golf course when a few miles down the road you've got a a semi private course like Silver Spring where you know people. Could could play at essentially the, the same rates. And, and again, look, I, I, I'm a big fan of public golf. Like I say, I, I have a regular Sunday group that, that I play with, and I've been doing that. The group has changed over the years, but, you know, since the 80s. So, I, I mean, I, I appreciate that, and I appreciate the fact that, hey, you can go out and you can play golf for like 40 to $50, which to me is a very reasonable sort of thing. I, I will say, I, again, I, I'm somewhat sympathetic to the, these other courses because, it's one thing for me to shell out forty to fifty bucks a week, whatever that might be. It's another thing when I say, "Gee, do I really?" Because, because look, I, I'm a ham and egger. I, I'm an okay golfer, but I'm 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 not that great a golfer. It, it's not like I need to play Augusta. It's more kind of like, okay, I you know, do, do I need do I enjoy going out to a golf course? It's going to cost me one hundred and twenty five dollars. Do I get that much more pleasure than I do playing the course for forty five bucks? And the chances are, you know, typically probably not. Chris in West Bend, Chris, you're on WTMJ. Hi there. Hi, Chris. Um, I truly do believe that if we're talking about the bull in general, uh, they marketed themselves um, below what they're valued at, and that it's a brand issue. And for them to be the signature Jack Nicholas course, um, so you they think they should have charged more? Should be charging at that one fifty. Yeah, they should be at that, if not more. But they devalue in the spring and fall so much that the average customer in the demographic area is going to be paying only that $40, 50 because that's what's in their budget, and that's what they know they can play that course at. Mm-hmm. So, so you're thinking rather than doing discounts? only valued at that. Do you think... Do you think there are enough golfers out there, given the fact that fewer and fewer people are being attracted to the sport now? I mean, it's golf is not a growth industry. And don't get me wrong, I love golf, okay? So I'm, I'm a golfer. But it, it's not attracting new people like it was 15 or 20 years ago for a variety of reasons. Do you think that there's enough interest that you could – all right, have have multiple courses that are charging two hundred bucks a round up in in that area. I think that you have to look at it bigger than just golf, and that would be what your disposable income is that week. You're competing with going to a Bucks game. You're yep. competing with going to a Packer game. You're competing with all this other entertainment business. Yep. We are in the entertainment business. I've been working in the golf industry for twenty six years, and I'm telling you that there's only so much disposable income yep. to be given to go do this and the branding of that they they needed to uphold their their the flavor of what they're giving of a hundred and fifty dollar value right you can go get steaks you know that and right. and that's you know you can get an eighty dollar meal with your wife or you can go out and twenty dollars there's an expectation of what you're going to get do you and think we're going to offer it always at go, right. ahead, go ahead do, do you think we're do you think we're 
that this is a problem that's unique to this golf course, or do you think we're going to see more and more golf courses in Wisconsin closing over the next few years? The the drive of the industry in the past decade has been in decline. Uh, Play has been down, and that is partially weather-related. We did go through a spell the last two seasons with what we've had, but it is in decline. And it is because I think that there's just more competition of yeah. entertainment in general, yeah. not just golf. Right. And people, and, and again, it, it's all sorts of, I mean, like, for example, I have I have several friends who have young families, and in, in this case, it's, it's the guys in general. They would love to play golf every Saturday morning, but, you know, they, they, they just can't get out <laughs> to do that. They don't have it, four or five it, hours it, they can also spend. It's time-consuming. Yeah. Exactly. It shoots the entire day if you're doing an 18-hole experience. Right, exactly. And un- unfortunately, you know, they are, you know, a, I don't want to say a stepchild to, you know, polar, but they are competing with such something on a bigger right. scale. Right. Are it, they going to fit into that realm, or are they going to fit into the public play $40, $50 for 18 holes riding? And I think the loss of what they were branded is kind of the downfall. And this isn't the first time that the bull had problems. Right. No, they've, they've had some financial uh, problems before. Yeah. Hey, thanks for coming. Sorry, i got to let you go because we're hitting the top there. I, I, I think this is going to be an interesting trend to watch. I, I think the... I think the public courses, obviously, they're they're going to be fine. They're they're supported by the taxpayers. I think some of the the lower cost, you know, semi private places are going to be fine. The clubs are going to be fine, and there's always going to be space for you know the the experiences, the the whistling straits of the world. Pebble Beach is five hundred and fifty dollars. I played Pebble Beach one time. It wasn't anywhere near that expensive. I had a great time, but I have no desire to go back. And there's no way I would shell out five hundred and fifty bucks. Now, if somebody wanted to take me, it might be a different story. But on, on my dime, no, no way, five hundred fifty bucks because I just wouldn't enjoy it that much more than I enjoy playing the public course or playing the course I, I belong to, where the, the rates aren't anywhere near that much. This is Jeff Wagner. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. So, Melissa Barclay, do you know the Super Bowl is, of course, Sunday. Do you know how much a 30-second ad mm. on CBS during the Super Bowl is going to cost? I'm going to say $20 million. 30-second at $20 million. Mm. Rue, would you like to take a guess? 30-second ad. Yeah, did we, didn't we do this, like, last week? I think it was around $8 million? Well, if we did... $5 if, million? If, if, if we did it, you must not have been listening very well. No, I can't uh, remember the number. Uh, okay, all right. No, a 30-second ad costs between $5.1 and $5.3 million. Okay. 30-second hey, ad. I got it. If we were on well, a you bet, get, you well, would have you, you started out by saying eight. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, oh, maybe it was five. Okay, it's 5.1 to $5.3 million for a 30-second ad. If you want a minute ad, they discount it. You got $10 million, you can get an ad. But before I go into where I'm going with this, have you, Melissa, been following the, the Mr. Peanut controversy? Oh, just a little bit. Okay, well, here, and this... Let me back into this. This this kind of shows how advertisers can come up, organizers, advertisers, you come up with the best plan, and then all of a sudden something can happen that just makes that plan go to you know what. Um, the, the the Mr. Peanut contract, the, the Planters Peanuts, for 104 years, they've had the symbol Mr. Peanut, you know, the, with the hat, the, the monocle. The monocle right. Yeah. Okay. Well, they 
they came up with a plan, not unlike last year where Bud Light, remember in the Super Bowl, they killed the Bud Light night in kind of a Game of Thrones thing? Oh, You're looking I, at me I like, okay, right, well, they, they brought him back eight months you. later. Yeah, but that, okay. Right, that was the big thing. They killed the Bud Light night, mm-hmm. and it was like, but that's, that's all the tension. Well, planters came up with this idea this year that they were going to kill Mr. Peanut. And so... What, what happened is they, they've been running these ads for like the last two weeks, and it's um, you, you, it's it's kind of tough to describe. It's like a social media well, thing. Well, well, no, no, it's it's also on TV. Hmm. No, they've they've been spending a lot of money, but it, it's Mr. Peanut who's driving in in a car with um, a couple actors, Wesley Snipe and Matt Walsh. And what happens is, like, the car crashes, and it, it starts to go over a cliff, and the Mr. Peanut character and the two actors, they're, like, like hanging off this branch, and the branch starts to give way, and Mr. Peanut sacrifices himself for the two actors. So he lets go, so Mr. Peanut dies, okay, in this fiery kind of crash. And apparently the follow-up during the Super Bowl was going to be, like, the funeral of Mr. Peanut, you know, and so they were going to have this ad. All right, well, then Kobe Bryant dies in a helicopter crash. (laughs) And now, I mean, I have this huge story in the Wall Street Journal. Planters pauses promotion of Mr. Peanut's Super Bowl funeral. Now, I'm not exactly sure why this makes you want to, why showing an ad featuring the the funeral of of a character inspires people to want to go out and buy the peanuts. I don't quite understand the rationale behind that in the first place, but they had invested millions and millions of dollars in this, and now they're thinking, huh, uh, given you know all the things that happened with Kobe Bryant, maybe this isn't the, the best taste to yeah, go the, ahead and do this. The timing is a little bit off on well, that. And, and maybe this would have turned out to be like the greatest promotion in the world, but i got to believe there's a lot of ad executives going, oh, my gosh, you know, we, we planned all this, and then you have it, – it's sort of like – you talk to organizers, people who run the ethnic festivals. So I talked to Don Smiley, who you know at Summerfest or, or church festivals or whatever, and they can have the greatest thing lined up. You can have your church is getting ready to run a weekend festival, and you've got the greatest entertainment in the world, and then you get a hundred and ten degree heat, or you get driving rain, and it just circumstances completely and totally beyond your control kills membership or attendance or whatever. Same thing is true apparently, where you've got this great plan, and then all of a sudden. Huh, given what's going on with Kobe Bryant, maybe it's not the best Probably idea. Probably not a good to... idea. Well, and if they pause it, when would they bring it back? You know what I, I mean? I, I I don't know if you would even bring it back. Right, and oh. I think they're kind of, again, they're kind of wrestling with, with that. Apparently, uh, to kind of make it a little bit worse is they had apparently, they had... Um, they had mailed out prayer candles to, for Mr. Peanut. For Mr. Peanut, they had mailed them out to a lot of like influencers and stuff, and they, they hit. You know, they, they'd already sent them out, and then of course you have the tragedy involving Kobe Bryant, yeah. and they're kind of like, "Oh, maybe this isn't the best idea." So I don't know what's going on with the Mr. Peanut ads, but that was a long way of getting around to what I want to talk about, <laughs> which is Super Bowl ads. Yeah. Five point one million dollars for a thirty-second ad. $10 million for a 60-second ad. For the first time, and I believe I'm safe in saying the first time, there will be political ads during the Super Bowl. Mike Bloomberg, former gov- former mayor of New York, running as a Democrat um, who has more money than God, 
Bloomberg has purchased a $10 million 60-second ad buy on during the Super Bowl. In response to that, President Trump has purchased a 60-second ad buy. So I, I don't know when in the Super Bowl these are going to run, and the costs a little bit vary. There, there's different times that are better than other times. I mean, it, typically you want to be towards the beginning of the game then at the end of the game because if the game turns out to be a dog, all sorts of people have stopped watching. So I don't know when exactly they're going to run. But Bloomberg and Trump are both spending $10 million to run ads during the, the Super Bowl. It's their money. They can do what they want. But what's really interesting is that this question about whether or not you would like to see the Super Bowl be essentially immune from political ads. There's a new poll that's out that says, let's see, 63% of people who voted for President Trump and 56% of all Democrats are saying they don't want to see political ads during the Super Bowl. And the argument is that, hey, the, these, these ads, the, the Super Bowl, it, it's just, there, is there, isn't there any place anymore that's kind of immune from, from politics? And the Super Bowl is for the funny ads. The Super Bowl is for the ads trying to sell products, et cetera, et cetera. And there appears, at least in some circles, that there may be a backlash to running political ads during the Super Bowl. And these are national political ads. All right, let me tee this up. 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I will be watching the Super Bowl on Sunday. And I'll be watching it for the game. But one of the things that I do, because next Monday, as as part of just the comment, my, my job to comment on social trends, we'll be talking about Super Bowl ads in some variation. So I that means I got to watch the Super Bowl ads. So I will be... I will be doing that. I'll look for the funny ones. I'll look for the effective ones. I'll look for the ones that make me want to buy the product. I'll look for the creative ones. In this case, there's also going to be political ads. Do you want to see political ads during the Super Bowl? And I'm not arguing they should be banned. I'm just asking you whether you think political ads during the Super Bowl will turn people on or will turn people off. Will the reaction be, my God, the last thing I want to do is see a Trump ad during the Super Bowl. Oh, my God, the last thing I want to see is an ad for Mike Bloomberg during the Super Bowl. The Super Bowl, should it be immune from political ads? 855-616-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. What do you think? We discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. This is Jeff Wagner. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Don't get me wrong. I'm not arguing that like CBS shouldn't take $10 million from the Bloomberg campaign or the Trump campaign if they want to buy a spot. I'm just asking you whether you think the, the Super Bowl and the ads that run during it are are the appropriate place for political ads or some of the social advertising or things like that. I tend to think that the majority of people that are watching the game would like to see the game and the commercials sort of be a, a break from from politics and from social causes and things like that. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Let's start with Sue in Waterford. Hi, Sue. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. What do you think? Um, I agree with you. I think that we should have a reprieve from the political ads during Super Bowl. But going beyond that, Whenever I see a political ad, I don't care who it's for, I don't listen to it. I mute it. 
<laughs> I have no interest in what they're saying. But, so you know, they're wasted money on me. But, you know, that's kind of, at some point in time, I'm going to do a topic about whether or not uh, whether or not all the advertising and is living in Wisconsin, we're going to be bombarded, you know, for the next 10 or 11 months with all sorts of advertising. I'm going to do a topic about yeah. whether or not it works for you. It, it just it's all white noise to you, huh? I mute all of them. <laughs> just that doesn't matter whether it's a candidate you like or not. It's just you, you know, a pox on everybody's houses. You don't want to hear it. Exactly. I know who I'm going to vote for, so I don't want to hear anything more. Just yeah. don't bother. Don't uh, waste your money. Take yeah. that money and give it to feed poor people or something. Got it. Thanks for call. Well, I mean, it all. You always do wonder whether it's. And I, I don't. I mean, look. I, I work for a radio station that sells. We're going to have all sorts of political advertising on, and our former, you know, WTMJ, the TV station that we share used to share a corporate identity with. I mean, there, you know, political advertising is a big part of everybody's budget. You know, over the course of when there's these political years that are out there, um, like next year, like this year will be moving forward. Um, and I always wonder how effective. That is. Jeff, I go to the same bar every year to watch the game. None of us watch the commercials anymore anyway because they have gotten horrible. So personally, I could care less. I will tell you this. I think I, I think did you have a right to buy them. Yeah, it, you, you do. But I think for most people, whether it's it's the pure political ads or the ads where you've got the 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 business that wants to promote some sort of social cause. You know, you know what I mean. Some of those, those ads where they're doing something other than just kind of promoting, those always tend to be the least well-received. And my guess is, you know, when they do the ad meter things, my guess is this year, the, the Bloomberg ads, the Trump ads, they're going to probably be down there. Because even though they might be great ads, I think the majority of people probably, regardless of whether who you support, this isn't a – this isn't a G. I, I love President Trump, or I really want Mike Bloomberg to be the president, or Jewish wish Bernie Sanders had ten million dollars to drop on these ads. I, I just think, I think the venue is such that a lot of people just don't want to see these. Just like a lot of people don't want to see the advertisers who are pushing some social cause during the Super Bowl. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Todd in Milwaukee. Todd, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, listen, I got to tell you, my family, my kids, my aunts and uncles, everybody, we watch the Super Bowl every year to watch the ads uh-huh. and watch the musical guests. The ads have been horrible. And if you start putting, not you, but if they yeah. start putting political stuff on, it just makes me not even want to watch the game, you know? <laughs> Right. Even what, if the Packers were playing, I, I don't know if I'd want to watch the commercials anymore. Right. It's like, oh, my gosh, we're getting inundated with all this. Okay, let me let me ask you, Todd, think back. Can you, off the top of your head, and I know this might not be fair since you called in without any notice, what's the best Super Bowl ad that you can remember? Is there one in particular that comes to mind? Yeah, I, it, many years ago, I would say Michael Jackson surprising the little Alfonso dancing around with a can of Pepsi, and okay. he comes into him, and he's like, what? Okay. You know? That, All right. That's the kind of thing that everybody loves. Right. You know, I, it's because it's funny. I mean, thank because I, I, I just, the reason I, yeah, thanks for the call. The reason I asked you that question was because 
if, if I had to think of one, and you asked me that same question, the one that pops to mind was the it, the ad for a car company. I don't even remember which car company, which is always one of my points, too, about the, these ads. If I'm spending $5 million for a 30-second ad to promote something, you're going to darn well know what it is that I'm promoting. You know, it, It's not going to be one. Because every, every Monday after the Super Bowl, we'll have these conversations, and people call up, and they say, I love that ad with the, the kid and the monkey or whatever. And I'll say, yeah, what, what was it for? And then it'll be... Not exactly positive. I remember it was one for the car company where the kid was, the the kid was he was Darth Vader. He was dressed up as Darth Vader, and he was like you know moving his hand trying to invoke the Force to get the car turned on. And the dad or the mom or somebody's in the kitchen. They see it going on, and they they push the remote control, and all of a sudden the car turns on, and the kid freaks out. I I that's the one that kind of sticks in in my mind. Um, but at at the same time, I I do. It, this isn't about do you have the right to buy the ads. Of course, you have the right to buy the ads. But I think that um, I think that you know, in, in general, I think that there's going to kind of be a backlash. Here's some text, Jeff. Keep them off. We are being inundated with political stuff. The Super Bowl should be a political ad-free zone. Well, I think that there's you know uh, there's going to be an an element. Of that, Jeff, I remember all the awesome unity in Wisconsin that occurred when the Packers last won the Super Bowl, and then Act 10 occurred, and then the political divisiveness ensued. Let's keep that out of the Super Bowl. Jeff, I agree with your first caller. I mute the ads. I don't listen to them. I don't answer the phone if I don't recognize the number because I don't want to hear about it. I'm tired of all the baloney. Um, yeah, yeah. Jeff, Colin Kaepernick already ruined keeping sports free from political statements, so I guess why not? Well, that's, I mean, that's the the case, but my argument would be, okay, the NFL, the NFL's, doing great this year but i mean there, there's no question i think the controversies involving colin kaepernick and all that from a couple of years back that hurt him for a while it, it did maybe they've gotten past it in any event if you tune into the super bowl if you tune into the super bowl be prepared be prepared for at least two 60 second ads featuring the president of the united states who wants to be reelected and one of the guys who wants to be president of the United States. And then we'll see how that compares with the latest Doritos ad and the uh, Budweiser, Clydesdales, and all that sort of stuff. This is Jeff Wagner.